This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1. says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth, or the earth, lower regions, the earth. Make sure I say that correctly. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One of my favorite passages and most convicting ones for me, but one that I have looked to and highlighted since God's call on my life. Let me fix this. Hold on. Into full-time pastoral ministry is Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. It is a, a, a challenge. It is a command. It is a strong word from Paul to the church, from God to his church, through his apostle. The calling to walk in a manner worthy of the calling stands as a reminder of who we are in Christ. This is important for all who have said yes to God and followed through in a calling to ministry, through ordination, through a position within the church and office, but calling also to every Christian, to every follower of Christ that has said yes to Jesus and claims the name Christian. For every Christian here today, we must remember that we are who God says we are. We are His image bearers, created for His glory, serving for His kingdom, united in the faith, and valuable. We're in a series titled Self-Portrait. The, the concept of the self-portrait theme, self-portrait theme is to push against that, that, that reality that so many people face regarding who they are and their identity. Our identity is not based on what we do, even though that's how often we introduce ourselves. Hello, my name is so-and-so, and this is what I do for a living. So often people are identified by what they do, but that's not how God identifies us. It was a counselor from the Christian ministry, Rafa, years ago at a conference I was at who said that you are not a human doing, you are a human being, and you are valuable because of who you are, not just because of what you do. 
There are no accidental people. That's a good reminder to us. There are no accidental people. There are no mistakes. There are no unplanned people. You know, people, we may be surprised, but God and His sovereignty is not. I remember one pastor at a conference I took students to many years ago in Texas, and then when I first got here to Florida, to Jacksonville, we went to the same conference. We were in a church, and this, this gentleman has a, had a knack for being very blunt and, and speaking to the students in a way that garnered their attention, and they would listen well and listen closely. And he made this statement to thousands of teenagers in this conference hall because he knew that at, a, at some level, every 12 to 18-year-old at some point struggles with the concept of who am I? Am I identity? Am I valuable? Am I worth it? And he made this statement. He said, there are no such thing. There is no such thing as an illegitimate child. There are no illegitimate children. There are a host of illegitimate parents. But there are no illegitimate children. You are valuable to God. On, on April 14th, you may have seen the, the promotion we put out. I'll, I'll share it with you once more, and you can begin to, to tell your friends and others and your neighbors about this. We are hosting my friend Daniel Ritchie here on Sunday mornings at our 8 o'clock, our 915 Island Church service, and then once again here at 1045. Daniel uh, was on Fox News last week. He was a feature interview on one of the interview shows. He is an author. He is a pastor. He is speaking all around the world now, and we met him through men's ministry at a, at a battle-ready conference that we were hosting, and we were partnered with our friends from North Carolina. And Daniel has an incredible story. He's 35 years old. He's got a beautiful wife. He has children, but Daniel was born without arms. And so everything you do with your hands, Daniel does with his feet. It's an amazing story, and his testimony is such that when he was born and the shock to his parents was that he had no arms. He was born without arms. He didn't lose them. He never had them. And the doctor was surprised. Didn't expect to see that. It, nothing showed up on anything. Apparently, 35 years ago when the birth takes place, the doctor there is holding Daniel with his, with, without arms and holding him up. And, and basically, in Daniel's testimony, he speaks to the, the doctor speaks to his parents and says, well, what do you want to do with this? It's your choice. In this age of third trimester and post -third, fourth trimester abortion that many are proclaiming and desiring, Daniel Ritchie declares that he is viable and valuable. And while others may have looked at him strangely in school, God has used his differences as God chose to for God's glory and his good. I invite you to be here on Palm Sunday when Daniel shares more than just that, but shares about the gospel and how it has changed his life. So therefore, despite what other people may say about you, what you may hear, what is believed between your ears, what you think the mirror is affirming, the truth is freeing and clear. You are loved by the God who created you on purpose. He has much for you. Life circumstances do not determine your worth. God does. And with this overwhelming reality of God's goodness and His grace upon you, if you were to ask Paul, name one person God would not use to grow His church, Paul would have said, me. But God saw fit to choose Paul for a task, for a job, for a role of church planting and missionary work and evangelization to the Gentile nation, this legalistic Jewish man 
who was intent on destroying the church, was chosen by God for a story that Paul could never have fathomed. And that mystery applies to you and me as well. So hear me clearly, you are important and you are valuable, but make sure you understand the tension that comes with this. Though you are valuable and though I am valuable to God and though we are worth it to God for all that He has done, He desires to know us. He has drawn us to Himself. This does not, our importance to Him does not place us at the center of the story. This is the tension. We are not the stars of this show. We are not the heroes of this epic. We are not even the key characters in this. God is. And yet in God's sovereign, divine grace, He has drawn us to Himself and invited us into a story that matters more than anything we could devise on our own. We are invited in not as bystanders, not as extras in the crowd, but as players in a story where He is the central character. We don't need to forget that in the midst of this. As I read Paul's statements here and to the, to the church, as he urges the church, as he urges us, as we are urged by God's Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, it sounds like a parent speaking to their teenager. If you could kind of imagine a parent with their teenager in their household, and, and maybe they have their driver's license now, or they have friends that have driver's licenses, that may be even more dangerous. So Paul sounds like the parent who's telling his teenager... Uh, when the friends show up and say, hey, we're going out, we're going to the movie, going out to eat, maybe we're going to a party, we're going to have a good time. The parent says to the kid as they're walking out the door, okay, be careful, be safe, and remember your name. I don't know if you've ever been told that. Remember your name. That's a powerful statement from a parent to a child. A pastor friend of mine spoke at one of our uh, a church, a nearby church in Texas when I was in seminary. His name is Chuck Angel. Chuck Angel said, when your last name is Angel and your parent says, remember your name, there's a whole level there that makes it much more difficult. But this point of remembering your name, remembering who you are, is this statement to the child that says, hey, go out, have a good time, enjoy your friends, but remember, you are not a solo act. You have my name. It's taken me a lifetime to, to make it what it is, it took my parents their lifetime. took my grandparents their lifetime. Don't undo what's taken lifetimes to make in 30 minutes of idiocy. Remember your name. That's what Paul is saying to the church. He says, church, you've claimed the name of Jesus Christ. You've claimed to be saved. You're wearing His name. And such you are, and I am proud that you are. But in the way that you live, and the way that you walk, and the way that you do life, just remember this. Remember your name. You are co-heirs with Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Don't wear His name on Sunday and put it up on Monday. Remember who you are. And remember whose you are. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility. When Paul says with all humility, that is a shot against every pagan cultic leader in the, in the world at that time. Because the pagan religions elevated pride and looked at a humble person as a weak person. Paul is saying, let them think you're weak because we know we're stronger than, we, than they think we are. Be humble. 
with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So three things that I see in these verses that I just, I keep coming back to, I've been coming back to since 1988, 89. In my reading, in my study, it's highlighted. I come back to this passage. Walking worthily. Walking worthy. What does it mean to walk in a worthy manner? What does it mean to walk in a worthy manner to the calling you've been given? Simply put, it means that you must remember that you have surrendered your right to drive. You don't get to drive anymore. You're not the boss anymore. You're not in charge anymore. You say, well, well, I'm the boss. You ever heard little kids get out and say, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. What Paul is saying is look in the mirror and tell yourself you're not the boss of yourself. Well, yeah, but I am the boss of me. You can't have a Lord named Jesus Christ if you choose to be the boss. It's a contradictory statement. Either he's the boss or you're the boss. There's no co-managers happening here. And this is a hard thing. It is, it is the declaration that I, I have given up my keys. I'm not driving. I have given up. Control. I'm not the pilot. Uh, God ain't my co-pilot. He is my pilot. I, my life is not my own. I am not the boss. I am not above the rules. I am not better than other people. I am not the most important person in the group, nor am I ever the smartest person in the room. No, no, never, never. No longer all about me. No longer all about you. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Means that you've abandoned all the selfishness that you have in your life, all the self-centricness, all the all-about-me's that you have, all the rights to write your own story. It's gone. And here's the huge challenge. This may be the most difficult task you and I have daily. You've got to remember this. This is written to Christians, not to lost people. This is a church message. And it's a huge challenge. It's difficult to walk in a manner worthy. So what is this worthy walk? The worthy walk is the disciples' walk. It's the walk that follows the leader. You ever play follow the leader as a child? You know the rules? Our kids are in kids' church today. I had a young lady at night that... that with me. Follow the leader has a, a pretty serious rules. Someone's the leader. Other people follow him. That's pretty much it. So we played follow the leader around the cafeteria at Patterson. Wherever I walked, she walked. She followed me. She laughed the whole time. I finally said, you can go sit down. The rest of the sermon has to happen. But she followed me. It's a very simple game. I think it was Francis Chan that used the illustration. He said, but how, how fruitless would it be for a group of children to come together and say, hey, let, we're going to play follow the leader. But rather than get into it right now, what we're going to do is we're going to set up a small group where we discuss what it might be like if we ever actually follow the leader. And then we're going to pull up some videos and some illustrations of what leader following looks like. And then we're going to spend six weeks in deep leader following study. If you're just talking about doing it and you never do it, you never really get to play the game. Same in church. If all we're doing regarding disciple-making is sitting in classes talking about what it might be like if we ever actually were a disciple making disciples, we're not making disciples. We're just talking about a good concept of biblical understanding. 
And I think we've had years and years of churches and churches and churches that have done a lot of study on what it might be like if we actually followed him and became a disciple. But at some point, I think what Paul is emphasizing here and what Christ is telling us today, what the Holy Spirit is leading us to is this point. At some point, you got to get in the game. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been given. And that walk means it has to happen while you're moving, not seated. So start living life and do so following Jesus. It is a walk that is straight and narrow. It is a walk that does not, uh, does, does, goes through the narrow gate. It is a walk that may feel like at some point you're the only one walking. You may look around and go, there's no one else with me. It may feel like that. But you're not walking alone because just because the crowd isn't with you. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Verse 2 gives characteristics of a worthy walk. Pride is eliminated. Self-focus has no place. I skipped this earlier. I want to go back to this in my notes here. This challenge to walk in a worthy manner is not just some concept for good Christian living. It becomes very real. As we realize what's happening in our world today, I, I, I know that most of you already know the story unless you ha- are, are willingly choosing to not be engaged in any news outlets at all for the past week. If you're not on Twitter or you're not on social media and you're not seeing trending stories and if you don't watch local news or national news or read any national news, you may have missed the story. But it was the biggest story for the early part of the week last week and it was released on Sunday morning about the time that we gathered for worship. An article in the Houston Chronicle, written by three reporters who had been working for quite some time. I knew the article was coming out as I was, uh, our association was contacted weeks back about a comment. We knew it was coming. We were waiting for it to show up. Uh, J.D. Greer, our president, had been contacted. He knew it was coming at some point. We were trying to prepare accordingly. But when the article finally hit, The horrific reality is there in black and white for all to see, and it is not something that should be ignored. It is not something that can be excused. As over 700 individuals have come forward from over the past 20 years revealing horrific sexual abuse that has occurred in Southern Baptist churches over the years. It's not unlike that which occurred in the Roman Catholic churches and others that are continuing to being revealed. And yet this one hits closer to home because it is home. Shame on any who make priest jokes about sexual abuse in the Catholic church just because you happen to not be Catholic. Because the reality is, it's Baptist. And it's likely Methodist and Episcopalian and Anglican and everything else too. But right now, this is our story. It's only 700 people, some say. There are thousands and thousands of Southern Baptists. 700 out of all those thousands is not a large number. Let me tell you how, what a large number is. A large number is one, especially if it's your, your kid or your spouse. Or you. Southern Baptists are in a unique situation here because the lost world does not differentiate between Catholic, Baptist, Presbyterian, or Methodist. The news reports say it's a Southern Baptist denomination. You are Southern Baptist. You know better. We're not a denomination. The full definition of the word denomination does not fit Southern Baptist. We don't have a word, so we use that one, but that's not what we are because we're not a hierarchical 
organization of religious groups. We are a networked by choice group of independent Baptist churches that choose to do things together because we want to. We are united in doctrine, at least hopefully, and in mission. But every church is autonomous. We own our own property when the bank lets us. We hire our own pastors and leaders. We fire our own pastors and leaders. We have ministries that we choose to have, not because they're mandated by any denominational entity, because they can't be. We are our own. Networked prayerfully for the glory of God. And yet, unfortunately, hiding behind the term autonomy has allowed much to go on that should not have gone on. I will not get into all of the depths of this, but I will say this. You can read at my blog, davidtarkington.com. i got two lengthy articles in response to this. It's not the fix for hardly any of it, but it is a reality check for many. This church here is not immune to this, nor have we been in our history. But thank God we responded well, at least to the stories we know. But what we know this, we have failed. We have failed to take it seriously. And here's something that you might not know, but you need to understand. When a Baptist church in some little town in Mississippi that you've never heard of does something wrong, it impacts us. When a Christian church in some other part of the country or world does something that is heinous, it impacts us. Why? Because the people that do not know us think that we are all exactly the same. But we do know this has happened in the history of Southern Baptist life. Church A will hire some pastor, minister, leader, volunteer, and they won't do a background check, and they won't, do, they won't put up safeguards. They'll just because, hey, you know, that's a good person, he's a good guy, she's a good lady. Surely, it's a grandparent, it'd never do anything. But they just let the guardrails down, and then that individual does something heinous. And a victim comes forward, and unfortunately, sometimes, if not most of the time, the victim is not listened to nor believed. So there's that sin. Then the accused and the one who is pretty obvious has done X, Y, or Z. How that little church often has responded in the past is to just fire that individual and let them go on their way, knowing that they're going to land somewhere else. And do the same thing again. And hide behind autonomy all you want, but that is sinful complicity. And we must do better. We must do all we can to protect the most vulnerable and ensure that we are not complacent in any area where harm could occur. When we put up our security guidelines and guardrails for our children's ministry, we had people in our church that were members get mad and leave because we required them to put a fingerprint in a computer and prove they were actually who they said they were when they wanted to pick up their own kid. How dare you, they said. I said, I'll err on that and see you later. But we will protect our children as best we can. And yes, more needs to be done. It's hard. It's challenging. It's difficult. In our network of church plants that we support and sponsor, we know how hard it is to be a church planter just looking for anybody with a heartbeat and blood pressure that will serve. But we help them by providing the background checks they need. 
because those churches become the easiest targets. We are in this together. We have to be. We cannot do less, we must do more, because to do less is to cheapen the grace of the gospel and ignore the fullness of the word of God. When I, I just want to go there for just a moment because that's what comes to mind when I read, Hey Christian, hey church, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been given. It's heavy, it's difficult, it's holy. Don't mess it up. Walking worthily means that and much more. Walking united is the second thing Paul references. We are one as his church. Jesus did not... Let this sink in because I'm going to lament here publicly and then we're going to get back on track. But Jesus did not die for a segment of his church. He did not die for a ministry. And I lament the reality that I have been a part of a, of a system that has elevated ministries in the church almost to the degradation of the church itself. When I was a student pastor, I actually had students who were members of the student ministry, but were not members of the church, nor did they feel connected at any level. You can be a member of any sub-ministry within the church and never really be a part of the church. You can be in the children's or the youth or the prayer or the choir or any other ministry you can name. And those ministries are good and they're healthy and we like them. But it's not the church. And what happens when John Doe is a member of a ministry, but never engaged in the church? What happens is that when the leader of that ministry either moves on or that ministry dissolves, all those people who were just members of the ministry, whether it's children's ministry or youth ministry or anything you can name, they were not really part of the church. They were just part of a sub-ministry, and they were really only part of a sub-ministry under that individual's leadership. And when that individual is gone, they feel no place at all within the church. And how easy is it for them to disappear than blame the church for not reaching out to them when we say you were never part of the church? But we set the machinery up to let that happen. And that is sinful. That is wrong. You know, if it, at our Oak Harbor campus, if we had an individual that was called and, or actually was, I'm a member of the youth ministry. Do you know we don't have a youth ministry at Oak Harbor right now? Did you know that? Do you know why we don't have a youth ministry at Oak Harbor right now? We don't have youth. We have children. And we have some parents of those little children. And then we have a gap that jumps about 30 years to our senior adults. So if an individual is just part of the youth ministry there, they're not going to have a place because they don't feel a part of the church. We don't have a choir there any longer either. That was a big debate for at some point. We, we pretty much, under Brian Hoffman and, and even Drace at that point, we talked about the elimination of our choir. Now that, oh my goodness, I can't believe you eliminated the choir. Let me paint a picture for you. If we have 20 people in the choir, here's the service. 20 people in the choir, then they quit singing, and then they come out here, and now we have 20 people out here. It's the same people. It would have been easier for the pastor to turn around and just preach to them. Well, I can't believe we don't have a choir. Well, we are a choir. The whole church is a choir. It isn't a worship war, it's a reality check. And sometimes people are so called to a ministry, what if, what if, I'm not saying we're doing it, 
I don't think we need to. I don't think it's healthy. But what if every sub-ministry in our church was eliminated and all you had was the church? Well, I don't like that. I'd go somewhere else. I'd have the ministry I'm called to. Point taken and point made. Unity in the church. One in the Spirit leaves us abandoning whatever version of the pecking order we default to, to a place of submission and servant-mindedness. Not a calling to subservient living, nor a living as a spiritual lemming. This is a calling to unity in Christ as His church gathered for His glory, focused on His kingdom for the sake of the gospel. And it shifts the understanding of church fellowship to being more than a meal. It shifts the understanding of church discipleship to being more than a class. Church membership is more than a role. And church leadership is more than a title. A healthy church is united in calling, in conduct, in confession. And lastly, not only are we to walk worthy, not only are we to walk united, we are to walk uniquely, uniquely, uniquely made. Unity is not a synonym for sameness. God did not create us to be clones. We are not simply copies of one another. God created each of us in His image for His glory, but uniquely designed to glorify Him as an individual. Look to the person at your right and left. You will, defi- you will discover that you are not that person. What a shock. They are different than you. Even if you have an identical twin, they are different than you. Let's just go with the identical twin with shared DNA and all of that that comes with being an identical twin. If twin A prays to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and surrenders to Him, twin B doesn't go to heaven because of that. You get this, right? The individuality is unique. The uniqueness that is designed within us is for God's glory. Your thoughts are yours. You can't get to heaven through someone else's relationship with God. Well, you know, my dad was a preacher. God has no grandkids and he's not impressed, but good, good for you for being in a preacher's house. Or we'll pray for you more depending on the perspective. You don't get to heaven because someone else was a good person or a Christian. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That means you don't get there through your mama, your daddy, your siblings, your grandparents, your teachers, your coaches, your Sunday school teachers, anyone else. When I was in junior high school, we used to take bus rides from our youth group. We had a, we had a small youth group and we would load up in a, in a wonderful old school bus every now and then, drive down to Kings Island in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we would sing deeply theological songs like, you can't get to heaven in a Kleenex box, God don't like those little snots. Do you remember these songs? <laughs> Anybody else sing these? You can't get to heaven on Superman, God might be a Batman fan. You got, there's a, there's a ton of these. It's a, it's a whole bus just singing together. Bad theology, but nevertheless, here's the point. You can't get to heaven any way except through Jesus Christ. And you don't deserve it. And neither do I. But it has been made available to us in our uniqueness, God's way. See, here's the thing. The way to heaven is the same for all of us. So uh, There's no other way. What about that guy in the middle of the jungle out nowhere? Uh, I'm so glad you're so concerned about somebody you're never going to meet. But why don't you just think about the person next to you today and you. No way to heaven, but by Jesus Christ. If for no other reason, maybe that will motivate you to go to the jungles and tell people about Jesus. 
No way to heaven, but by Jesus Christ. Same way, same heaven, by the way. Same God, same Jesus. And even though the way is the same, we are uniquely made in His image. We are not the same. You have a spiritual gift gifted to you at the moment you said yes to Jesus for those who are Christians. That gift was given to you for one reason ultimately, and that is to glorify the Father. And He has given that gift to you. I pray that you're using it for that reason. Everybody's been given a gift. This unique blessing of God upon your life. You are gifted. You are meant to walk worthily in unity with God's church. United in His Spirit so that you may uniquely serve Him, rightly so, with a biblical worldview for His glory and your good. And this is the challenge for each of us. Here's the reality check. Sometimes we don't walk worthily. Is that a word, worthily? It is now. We don't walk that way. Sometimes we don't, Christians. We mess up. We do things. We say things. We act in ways that are not godly. We put ourselves in positions or in places we should never put ourselves. We let our eyes linger longer on things we know we shouldn't. We imagine situations that are embarrassingly sinful. We do this. All of us do this. And then unity. Unity is difficult. Let me ask you a question by a show of hands. Has there ever been anybody on the planet that's hurt your feelings? Anybody? Anybody? You have had your feelings hurt. Has anybody here, maybe you don't want to be this honest, has anybody here ever had your feelings hurt by another Christian? Anybody at all? Anybody ever have your feelings hurt by another Christian who's a member of your same church? Unity is hard. Because people hurt each other's feelings all the time. And every one of us with our hand up could put the other one up and say, I'm the one that hurt other people's feelings. You're guilty. We all are. I mean, this church would be so much easier if not for people. Right? Because people hurt our feelings. We're a bunch of hurt feeling people. Sometimes someone didn't do what someone else expected them to do. The church today in America doesn't... I read this. It said churches today often don't want pastors. They want chaplains. And you'll get the difference in that when you start thinking about it because the pastor has a specific office and calling within the church to rightly divide the Word, to to preach it truthfully, to challenge and protect you from false doctrine, to make sure you're safe. That means... Just like when you were a kid and it ticked you off when your parents wouldn't let you do X, Y, and Z, so too will you be angry at your pastor for telling you, that ain't right, stop it. But a chaplain will hold your hand, and I'm a chaplain too. It's a different role. You have a pastor because the church needs a pastor, but many churches would rather have a chaplain. A chaplain may allow you to just kind of do your own thing, but it'll be there when you call them. While the pastor says, we're on a mission. And it's going to be difficult. But God has you here for His glory and we can do this. Sometimes unity in the church is difficult because some Christians join ministries instead of the church. And sometimes they're not fully covenant members of the church despite what the role book might say because they've functioned so long as just a ministry attender than a member with responsibility. Not only that, but comparative living within the church kills the fellowship of many. 
It's easy to say amen when discussing our unique roles and giftedness within the body, but when person A is looking at person B and going, I wish I could be more like person B because person B does X, Y, and Z and everybody likes X, Y, and Z, but my gift is over here and no one ever notices and person A tries to be person B and it is a total mess because that comparative living of I want to be like somebody else is killing us. And boy, it started long before Instagram, but Instagram and Facebook, I mean, it really makes it. How does everybody else's life look so happy and good online? Because everybody else is lying. No one's life is that good. It's not. And the food isn't that tasty. I'm sorry. All those pictures of your food. Stop it. (laughs) Just stop it. I'm going to just start posting peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That's all I'm going to post. Had some peanut butter today. It's great. I think I may go get a cheeseburger. But comparative living is killing us. The issues that we face today are not new. They're not unique. These have been around for centuries. Paul wrote them to the church in Ephesus because they were dealing with the same ones. And Paul, in his little prison cell, says, Hey, I'm in prison. Behave. God is so good. Don't forget who you are. He's telling them and telling us to remember to focus and don't forget your name. God has not changed. Christian, you are His. You're His for eternity and it's for His glory. It's for His good. Remember this. Non-Christian, you've been invited into a story much bigger than one you could ever manufacture on your own. And you're invited into a family that you need. God's love for you is more than you deserve. It's more than I deserve. And yet it's freely offered. Today could be your day of salvation. Christian, Maybe just today, you just needed to hear God say, remember your name. I gave you a new one when you said yes to me, and that name is child. You are a co-heir with Christ, and you matter.